Chapter Five of Middlemarch. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett, Houston, Texas, January two thousand eight. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Chapter Five. Hard students are commonly troubled with gouts, catars, rheums, cachexia, bradypepsia, bad eyes, stone, and colic, crudities, oppilations, vertigo, winds, consumptions, and all such diseases as come by overmuch sitting. They are most part lean, dry, ill-coloured, and all through immoderate pains and extraordinary studies. If you will not believe the truth of this, Look upon great Tostatus and Thomas Aquinas's works, and tell me whether those men took pains. Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, P. 1, S. 2 This was Mr. Casaubon's letter. My dear Miss Brooke, I have your guardian's permission to address you on a subject than which I have none more at heart. I am not, I trust, mistaken in the recognition of some deeper correspondence than that of date in the fact that a consciousness of need in my own life had arisen contemporaneously with the possibility of my becoming acquainted with you. For in the first hour of meeting you, I had an impression of your eminent and perhaps exclusive fitness to supply that need, connected, I may say, with such activity of the affections as even the preoccupations of a work too special to be abdicated could not uninterruptedly dissimulate and each succeeding opportunity for observation has given the impression an added depth, by convincing me more emphatically of that fitness which I had preconceived, and thus evoking more decisively those affections to which I have but now referred. Our conversations have, I think, made sufficiently clear to you the tenor of my life and purposes, a tenor unsuited, I am aware, to the commoner order of minds. But I have discerned in you an elevation of thought and a capability of devotedness, which I had hitherto not conceived to be compatible, either with the early bloom of youth, or with those graces of sex that may be said at once to win, and to confer distinction when combined, as they notably are in you, with the mental qualities above indicated. It was, I confess, beyond my hope to meet with this rare combination of elements both solid and attractive, adapted to supply aid in graver labours, and to cast a charm over vacant hours. And but for the event of my introduction to you, which, let me say again, I trust not to be superficially coincident with foreshadowing needs, but providentially related thereto as stages towards the completion of a life's plan, I should presumably have gone on to the last without any attempt to lighten my solitariness by a matrimonial union. Such, my dear Miss Brooke, is the accurate statement of my feelings and I rely on your kind indulgence in venturing now to ask you how far your own are of a nature to confirm my happy presentiment. To be accepted by you as your husband, and the earthly guardian of your welfare, I should regard as the highest of providential gifts. In return I can at least offer you an affection hitherto unwasted, and the faithful consecration of a life which, however short in the sequel, has no backward pages whereon, if you choose to turn them, you will find records such as might justly cause you either bitterness or shame. I await the expression of your sentiments with an anxiety, which it would be the part of wisdom, were it possible, to divert by a more arduous labour than usual. 
But in this order of experience I am still young, and in looking forward to an unfavourable possibility, I cannot but feel that resignation to solitude will be more difficult after the temporary illumination of hope. In any case, I shall remain yours with sincere devotion, Edward Casabon. Dorothea trembled while she read this letter. Then she fell on her knees, buried her face, and sobbed. She could not pray. Under the rush of solemn emotion in which thoughts became vague and images floated uncertainly, she could but cast herself, with a childlike sense of reclining, in the lap of a divine consciousness which sustained her own. She remained in that attitude till it was time to dress for dinner. How could it occur to her to examine the letter, to look at it critically as a profession of love? Her whole soul was possessed by the fact that a fuller life was opening before her. She was a neophyte about to enter on a higher grade of initiation. She was going to have room for the energies which stirred uneasily under the dimness and pressure of her own ignorance, and the petty peremptoriness of the world's habits. Now she would be able to devote herself to large yet definite duties. Now she would be allowed to live continually in the light of a mind that she could reverence. This hope was not unmixed with the glow of proud delight, the joyous maiden's surprise that she was chosen by the man whom her admiration had chosen. All Dorothea's passion was transfused through a mind struggling towards an ideal life. The radiance of her transfigured girlhood fell on the first object that came within its level. The impetus with which inclination became resolution was heightened by those little events of the day which had roused her discontent with the actual conditions of her life. After dinner, when Celia was playing an air with variations, a small kind of tinkling which symbolized the aesthetic part of the young lady's education, Dorothea went up to her room to answer Mr. Casaubon's letter. Why should she defer the answer? She wrote it over three times, not because she wished to change the wording, but because her hand was unusually uncertain, and she could not bear that Mr. Casaubon should think her handwriting bad and illegible. She piqued herself on writing a hand in which each letter was distinguishable, without any large range of conjecture, and she meant to make much use of this accomplishment, to save Mr. Casaubon's eyes. Three times she wrote, "'My dear Mr. Casaubon, I am very grateful to you for loving me, and thinking me worthy to be your wife. I can look forward to no better happiness than that which would be one with yours. If I said more, it would only be the same thing written out at greater length, for I cannot now dwell on any other thought than that I may be through life, yours devotedly, Dorothea Brooke." Later in the evening she followed her uncle into the library to give him the letter, that he might send it in the morning. He was surprised, but his surprise only issued in a few moments' silence, during which he pushed about various objects on his writing-table, and finally stood with his back to the fire, his glasses on his nose, looking at the address of Dorothea's letter. "'Have you thought enough about this, my dear?' he said at last. "'There was no need to think long, uncle. I know of nothing to make me vacillate. If I changed my mind, it must be because of something important and entirely new to me.' "'Ah! Then you have accepted him. Then Chetham has no chance. Has Chetham offended you? Offended you, you know? What is it you don't like in Chetham?' "'There is nothing that I like in him.' said Dorothea, rather impetuously. Mr. Brooke threw his head and shoulders backward, as if some one had thrown a light missile at him. Dorothea immediately felt some self-rebuke, and said, "'I mean in the light of a husband. He is very kind, I think, really very good about the cottages. 
A well-meaning man. But you must have a scholar, and that sort of thing. Well, it lies a little in our family. I had it myself, that love of knowledge and going into everything, a little too much. It took me too far. Though that sort of thing doesn't often run in the female line. Or it runs underground, like the rivers in Greece, you know. It comes out in the suns. Clever sons, clever mothers. I went a good deal into that at one time. However, my dear, I have always said that people should do as they like in these things, up to a certain point. I couldn't, as your guardian, have consented to a bad match. But Casabon stands well, his position is good. I am afraid Chetham will be hurt, though, and Mrs. Cadwallader will blame me." That evening, of course, Celia knew nothing of what had happened. She attributed Dorothea's distracted manner, and the evidence of further crying since they had got home to the temper she had been in about Sir James Chetham and the buildings, and was careful not to give further offence. Having once said what she wanted to say, Celia had no disposition to recur to disagreeable subjects. It had been her nature, when a child, never to quarrel with any one, only to observe with wonder that they quarrelled with her, and looked like turkey-cocks, whereupon she was ready to play at cat's cradle with them whenever they recovered themselves. And as to Dorothea, it had always been her way to find something wrong in her sister's words though Celia inwardly protested that she always said just how things were, and nothing else. She never did and never could put words together out of her own head. But the best of Dodo was, that she did not keep angry for long together. Now, though they had hardly spoken to each other all the evening, yet when Celia put by her work, intending to go to bed, a proceeding in which she was always much the earlier, Dorothea, who was seated on a low stool, unable to occupy herself except in meditation, said, with the musical intonation which in moments of deep but quiet feeling made her speech like a fine bit of recitative, "'Celia, dear, come and kiss me,' holding her arms open as she spoke. Celia knelt down to get the right level, and gave her little butterfly kiss, while Dorothea encircled her with gentle arms and pressed her lips gravely on each cheek in turn. "'Don't sit up, Dodo. You are so pale to-night. Go to bed soon.' said Celia, in a comfortable way, without any touch of pathos. "'No, dear, I am very, very happy,' said Dorothea fervently. "'So much the better,' thought Celia. "'But how strangely Dodo goes from one extreme to the other!' The next day at luncheon, the butler, handing something to Mr. Brooke, said, "'Jonas has come back, sir, and has brought this letter.' Mr. Brooke read the letter, and then, nodding toward Dorothea, said, "'Casabon, my dear. He will be here to dinner. He didn't wait to write more. Didn't wait, you know.' It could not seem remarkable to Celia that a dinner-guest should be announced to her sister beforehand, but, her eyes following the same direction as her uncle's, she was struck with the peculiar effect of the announcement on Dorothea. It seemed as if something like the reflection of a white, sunlit wing had passed across her features, ending in one of her rare blushes. For the first time it entered into Celia's mind that there might be something more between Mr. Casaubon and her sister than his delight in bookish talk and her delight in listening. Hitherto she had classed the admiration for this ugly and learned acquaintance with the admiration for Monsieur Leray at Lausanne, also ugly and learned. Dorothea had never been tired of listening to old Monsieur Leray, when Celia's feet were as cold as possible, and when it had really become dreadful to see the skin of his bald head moving about. Why, then, should her enthusiasm not extend to Mr. Casaubon, simply in the same way as to M. Liray? And it seemed probable that all learned men had a sort of schoolmaster's view of young people. 
But now Celia was really startled at the suspicion which had darted into her mind. She was seldom taken by surprise in this way, her marvellous quickness in observing a certain order of signs generally preparing her to expect such outward events as she had an interest in. Not that she now imagined Mr. Casaubon to be already an accepted lover. She had only begun to feel disgust at the possibility that anything in Dorothea's mind could tend towards such an issue. Here was something really to vex her about Dodo. It was all very well not to accept Sir James Chetham, but the idea of marrying Mr. Casaubon! Celia felt a sort of shame mingled with a sense of the ludicrous. But perhaps Dodo, if she were really bordering on such an extravagance, might be turned away from it. Experience had often shown that her impressibility might be calculated on. The day was damp, and they were not going to walk out, so they both went up to their sitting-room. And there Celia observed that Dorothea, instead of settling down with her usual diligent interest to some occupation, simply leaned her elbow on an open book, and looked out of the window at the great cedar silvered with the damp. She herself had taken up the making of a toy for the curate's children, and was not going to enter on a subject too precipitately. Dorothea was, in fact, thinking that it was desirable for Celia to know of the momentous change in Mr. Casaubon's position, since he had last been in the house. It did not seem fair to leave her in ignorance of what would necessarily affect her attitude towards him. But it was impossible not to shrink from telling her. Dorothea accused herself of some meanness in this timidity. It was always odious to her to have any small fears or contrivances about her actions. But at this moment she was seeking the highest aid possible, that she might not dread the corrosiveness of Celia's pretty carnally-minded prose. Her reverie was broken, and the difficulty of decision banished, by Celia's small and rather guttural voice speaking in its usual tone, of a remark aside or a by-the-by. "'Is any one else coming to dine beside Mr. Casaubon?' "'Not that I know of.' "'I hope there is some one else. Then I shall not hear him eat his soup so.' What is there remarkable about his soup-eating? Really, Dodo, can't you hear how he scrapes his spoon? And he always blinks before he speaks. I don't know whether Locke blinked, but I'm sure I am sorry for those who sat opposite to him if he did." "'Celia,' said Dorothea, with emphatic gravity, "'pray don't make any more observations of that kind.' "'Why not? They are quite true,' returned Celia who had her reasons for persevering, though she was beginning to be a little afraid. "'Many things are true which only the commonest minds observe.' "'Then I think the commonest minds must be rather useful. I think it is a pity Mr. Casaubon's mother had not a commoner mind. She might have taught him better.' Celia was inwardly frightened, and ready to run away, now that she had hurled this light javelin. Dorothea's feelings had gathered to an avalanche, and there could be no further preparation. It is right to tell you, Celia, that I am engaged to marry Mr. Casaubon." Perhaps Celia had never turned so pale before. The paper-man she was making would have had his leg injured, but for her habitual care of whatever she held in her hands. She laid the fragile figure down at once, and sat perfectly still for a few moments. When she spoke, there was a tear gathering. "'Oh! Dodo! I hope you will be happy!' Her sisterly tenderness could not but surmount other feelings at this moment, and her fears were the fears of affection. Dorothea was still hurt and agitated. "'It is quite decided, then,' said Celia, in an awed undertone, "'and Uncle knows.' "'I have accepted Mr. Casaubon's offer. My uncle brought me the letter that contained it. He knew about it beforehand.' 
I beg your pardon. If I have said anything to hurt you, Dodo," said Celia, with a slight sob. She never could have thought that she should feel as she did. There was something funereal in the whole affair, and Mr. Casaubon seemed to be the officiating clergyman, about whom it would be indecent to make remarks. "'Never mind, Kitty. Do not grieve. We should never admire the same people. I often offend in something of the same way. I am apt to speak too strongly of those who don't please me." In spite of this magnanimity, Dorothea was still smarting, perhaps as much from Celia's subdued astonishment as from her small criticisms. Of course all the world round Tipton would be out of sympathy with this marriage. Dorothea knew of no one who thought as she did about life and its best objects. Nevertheless, before the evening was at an end, she was very happy. In an hour's tête-à-tête with Mr. Casaubon, she talked to him with more freedom than she had ever felt before, even pouring out her joy at the thought of devoting herself to him, and of learning how she might best share and further all his great ends. Mr. Casaubon was touched with an unknown delight—what man would not have been—at this childlike unrestrained ardour. He was not surprised—what lover would have been—that he should be the object of it. "'My dear young lady—Miss Brooke—Dorothea!' he said, pressing her hand between his hands. This is a happiness greater than I had ever imagined to be in reserve for me. That I should ever meet with a mind and person so rich in the mingled graces which could render marriage desirable, was far indeed from my conception. You have all—nay, more than all—those qualities which I have ever regarded as the characteristic excellencies of womanhood. The great charm of your sex is its capability of an ardent self-sacrificing affection and herein we see its fitness to round and complete the existence of our own. Hitherto I have known few pleasures, save of the severer kind. My satisfactions have been those of the solitary student. I have been little disposed to gather flowers that would wither in my hand, but now I shall pluck them with eagerness, to place them in your bosom." No speech could have been more thoroughly honest in its intention. The frigid rhetoric at the end was as sincere as the bark of a dog or the cawing of an amorous rook. Would it not be rash to conclude that there was no passion behind those sonnets to Delia, which strike us as the thin music of a mandolin? Dorothea's faith supplied all that Mr. Casaubon's words seemed to leave unsaid. What believer sees a disturbing omission or infelicity? The text, whether of prophet or of poet, expands for whatever we can put into it, and even his bad grammar is sublime. I am very ignorant. You will quite wonder at my ignorance," said Dorothea. I have so many thoughts that may be quite mistaken, and now I shall be able to tell them all to you, and ask you about them. But," she added, with rapid imagination of Mr. Casaubon's probable feeling, I will not trouble you too much, only when you are inclined to listen to me. You must often be weary with the pursuit of subjects in your own track. I shall gain enough if you will take me with you there. How should I be able now to persevere in any path without your companionship?" said Mr. Casaubon, kissing her candid brow, and feeling that heaven had vouchsafed him a blessing in every way suited to his peculiar wants. He was being unconsciously wrought up by the charms of a nature which was entirely without hidden calculations, either for immediate effects or for remoter ends. It was this which made Dorothea so childlike, and, according to some judges, so stupid, with all her reputed cleverness as, for example, in the present case of throwing herself, metaphorically speaking, at Mr. Casaubon's feet, and kissing his unfashionable shoe-ties as if he were a Protestant pope. 
She was not in the least teaching Mr. Casaubon to ask if he were good enough for her, but merely asking herself anxiously how she could be good enough for Mr. Casaubon. Before he left the next day it had been decided that the marriage should take place within six weeks. Why not? Mr. Casaubon's house was ready. It was not a parsonage, but a considerable mansion, with much land attached to it. The parsonage was inhabited by the curate, who did all the duty except preaching the morning sermon. End of chapter 5